When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Okay, you got a plan or shall I just stay duck and cover? My plan was to drive us away. Well, your plan sucks. With Black Widow opening this weekend, MCU fans may be cheering the series' return to theaters after a two-year hiatus. Me, I'm just glad to see Florence Pugh again. The Pugh cinematic universe carries on. That was Pugh with Black Widow herself, Scarlett Johansson. This week, we've got a review of Marvel's latest offering, plus reviews of the new concert doc Summer of Soul, and Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. That and more. You've got a plan for all this, right, Adam? What if it involves a lot of ducking and covering? It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, it's just a few days after the 4th of July as we record this show. You recently moved to the city after years in the Chicago suburbs. The most burning question I have for you at the top of this episode is, has your position on fireworks changed? (laughs) Are are you assuming it's worse In the city. Is that okay? I think I am. That's what I was thinking. Um, I mean, at least where we are, it's probably the opposite because you've been over and we're, we're pretty high up, you know, we're, we're not like street level where those insane loud bombs go off and and you worry about what just happened to someone's limbs. So, and it's a, it's a pretty good view too. Like we could see all the ones out in the suburbs. So I think I'm, you know, a little more pro actually. Okay. So it's nice up in the penthouse, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I wish. (laughs) The spectacle of the big screen variety has also been in great supply recently. We'll get to several new releases this week. Well, several being four. Steven Soderbergh's latest, the crime drama No Sudden Move. That came to HBO Max last week. Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, and a bunch of other great actors in that one. Also, Summer of Soul from first-time director Questlove came to theaters and to Hulu. That concert doc about a 1969 Harlem concert series that featured performances by Nina Simone, Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stone, and many more. All of those, having never been seen since 1969, our review of that one could just be a ranking of our top five favorite moments. We might we might even do that, Josh. That would probably get us through the first half hour of the movie, I think. Good we point. could We could pick five from that. Yeah. You also caught up with Zola which stars Riley Keough, a wild road trip tale inspired, at least in part, by an infamous Twitter thread. I can't wait for you to unpack that and more later in the show. But first, the MCU is finally back on a big screen near you. After a handful of Disney Plus streaming series, Phase 4 kicks off with the Scarlett Johansson starring feature, Black Widow. Before I was an Avenger, I made mistakes. of enemies. His call signs Taskmaster. He controls the Red Room. 
They're manipulated. Fully conscious, but no choices. I should have come back for you. How many others are there? Enough. Call her Black Widow. Call her Natasha Romanoff. Scarlett Johansson returns as the former KGB assassin turned Avenger in the 24th MCU feature, which is named after her. Now, timeline-wise, Black Widow takes place in the aftermath of Captain America Civil War. I think I've got that right. Adam had to confirm it with my daughter, who knows more about the MCU than I do. I think that's correct. With the Avengers in disarray, Natasha goes on the run while also investigating a conspiracy linked to her childhood as a pawn of the Russian state. This involves reuniting with her quote-unquote father, played by David Harbour, her mother, Rachel Weisz, and her sister, played by Florence Pugh. Basically, what we have here, Adam, is a Jason Bourne-style spy flick with the burden, or maybe the blessing, we'll have to talk about this, of taking place within the larger narrative and aesthetic framework of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The director this time is Kate Shortland, and the screenplay is by Eric Pearson. From what I've seen, Black Widow has been mostly well-received by critics, with particular praise for the cast and the fun the movie has with the makeshift family dynamic. Which leads me to my question, Adam. We're fresh off another major franchise installment, F9, The Fast Saga, and as we all know, family is very important to the ethos of those movies. I'm wondering if you found this family focus to be a strength of Black Widow. And really more importantly, I just want to know, would you rather be adopted into (laughs) Natasha's clan of renegade Russian spies or Dom's brood of sleeveless street racers? Hmm. Well, I will take the absurd earnestness of Dom and his crew. Any day of the week. Thank you. Over, over, yeah, whatever is happening here in Black Widow. This was the last movie we reviewed, I think, F9, just before our little hiatus and before seeing Black Widow. You must have remembered reviewing F9. I bemoaned the continued marvelization of the Fast and Furious. And apparently, to ensure that all of our behemoth pop culture franchises persist in becoming one indistinguishable massive content, <laughs> the MCU is now faster and furiouser. It's balancing is, the universe, Adam. It is. It's it's a two and a half hour I got family meme. I think that's what I got with Black Widow. And I would be okay with that, except that the key scene where the family reunites, and this is not a spoiler. It's in the trailer that they all four do come together, Harbor, Vice, Pew, and Johansson. It's where, for me, the entire movie grinds to a complete halt. Mm. And it's ironic, too, because I spent most of the movie up to that point desperately wanting it to actually slow down. This movie cannot wait to go from action scene to action scene and set piece to set piece and destruction to more destruction and when it finally slows down here there is no spark no chemistry of any kind between these four characters tonally when i think about something like f9 and that series which as we talked about is absurdly earnest that that works that family element can come through because it embraces it so wholeheartedly and shortland goes for some earnest emotion, but mixed with really kind of hacky, jokey comedy. And of course, then with some action surrounding it, even in that piece I'm talking about, that family reunion scene. And 
none of it really comes together. None of it worked for me at all. And my biggest issue is, and I could be completely wrong about this, but I wouldn't be surprised if what drew Shortland to the material beyond the female-driven story was what I'll call the Solaris Factor. And Alex Garland's Devs is a series on TV that also recently pursued this same kind of philosophical line of thought. Longtime listeners know I love Solaris because I love the philosophical quandary it poses about reality versus fantasy. You have a main character who's grieving the loss of his wife. Suddenly, his wife appears. You know, I'm putting myself in place of the character here. Intellectually, it's not really her. That it's some kind of simulacrum, an apparition, whatever it is. But emotionally, everything about being with her feels real. And then if that's the case, why choose to go back to reality? The idea here that this fake family, one put together to be undercover spies, Russian secret agents living in America, to the four people who experienced it, who lived that fantasy, actually became a family, or at least processed the same emotions, love and disappointment and heartache that a real family does, is really provocative. And mm -hmm. I'll grant that I can't expect and don't expect Marvel to go all Tarkovsky on us, but I wish it had explored that idea a little bit more rigorously. You can't blame the performers. Harbour and Vice are obviously both really strong actors. Pew might be the most versatile actor on the planet right now. And Johansson, for me, and I think you agree, has always been a standout within the MCU. She's always been the emotional core, and I say that not because of her femininity, per se, but because she's just the best performer at conveying something deeper. She's, she's the most human of all the characters to me, and I suppose that would make some sense within the MCU. And honestly, I was reading some of my old notes today. You get more of a true exploration of trauma in the flashbacks in the Age of Ultron than we get in this entire movie, which actually is all about confronting the creator of that trauma. Yeah, I think this movie is depending on the previous presentation of trauma to register here rather than have us experience it again. And I think, you know, this is something that happens with the MCU. How much is is the movie that's being made dependent on the expectation that everyone who just who's going to see it now is sitting in the theater, just watch all the other films again, you know, right. because there are people who do that. Um, and how fresh is it in your mind? So to me, I, I think the idea is provocative. I don't think we get the prologue that is set, you know, when they're younger, that provides some of that, but not nearly enough. I think it really doesn't work as a matter of balance. I found some of the humor worked better for me. I think there is chemistry. I think Johansson and Pugh are very good together, even though sure. some of the material is obvious. You know, they're going for for easy laughs, but I think they, um, you know, they're they're deft enough performers to make that work. For me, it was the balance. It was that the scene you're talking about in particular, and really any scene that depended on this family theme, could not decide whether it was going to explore that in a comedic way or a traumatic way. It, it tried mm -hmm. to get 
both of those things happening at once. And it just never managed to to split that difference or walk that line, however you want to phrase it. Uh, it just kept going back and forth. It didn't balance the tragedy and comedy as well. And here's where we get back to Fast and Furious. You are exactly right. The earnestness is why that strikes a legitimate, authentic, emotional cord when I watch those movies because you believe that the filmmakers believe in it, that Vin Diesel wholeheartedly <laughs> believes in this, uh, you know, what may be a hokey concept. And because they do, you do. But in a movie like this, where they want to strike some of those chords, like that there is emotional healing that needs to be done among these mm-hmm. four, that they need to recover from what's happened to them together. But at the same time, you're going to play it for like some sitcom humor that never came together for me. So so it was sort of disappointing on that end. And, and I think otherwise you touched on the other thing that sort of held this movie back for me. It really suffers from MCU bloat. And I know that's a challenge that every one of these installments is going to have. How are we going to incorporate the, the references to other installments? Um, but this also has a way overly convoluted plot. It doesn't really need the running time you mentioned. Um, it begins to feel like a chore once you're pushing past two hours. And I know that almost all of these do here. Um, and the action as well. You know, it's it's competently staged, but there is so much of it and it all gears towards an explosive finale that is mm. obviously in front of green sp- screens. And for a movie that I do think, you know, emphasizes character in some good ways, all of that kind of gets lost when it builds up to something that feels so um, overbearing and familiar. So I may be a little bit higher on this than you overall. I would I would mm-hmm. place it mid-tier MCU, um, okay. basically. But um, but I do think there are some faults that, that hold it back, given what a great cast this is. And I certainly don't deny the chemistry between Johansson and Pew, who, again, I think is just remarkable really in anything she does but it's it's that whole family unit and really something about how that whole sequence really is staged in particular when all this is kind of bubbling to the surface and the past is coming up it's the it's the tonal shifts there that i don't think really are balanced properly and you said it was mid-tier not that it really matters but i did right before we started recording go to my letterboxed list of mcu movies i have 23 ranked Maybe I've missed some over the years. I have not seen, and I acknowledge that, the second Thor movie. And at this point, I don't know that I ever will. So I'm not an MCU completist, but I have Black Widow at number 20. Wow. Of 23. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely bottom tier for me. And I think maybe it's tough to say, Josh, that I was disappointed because I had high expectations for it. I didn't really. But with the Natasha character, the Black Widow character, I've just always felt like that haunted past of hers is the darkest and richest to explore in the MCU has the most layers and complexity. And again, I think even in flashbacks going back to Ultron and maybe other references throughout the MCU, I've always felt that Johansson is really able to convey the power of that without the film itself actually devoting a lot of time to it. She just imbues it with some potency. And so then to watch this, which suffers from, The MCU bloat, as you said, suffers from feeling just really, really conventional in a lot of ways. It did, I guess, disappoint me. Not even Florence Pugh was enough to save it. And I bring that up only because maybe I got my hopes up a little bit after seeing a lot of responses on Twitter where people were praising Pugh and saying that she's really a standout in the film. Look, yes, 
She's very good. She's an incredible actress. I'll say it now for the third time so far in this review. But it's not as if the movie, to me, really gives her enough to do. No. Enough to sink her her formidable acting teeth and chops into to make this somehow an exercise worthy of her talents. I really don't feel that way about Pew. And then you get to someone who's not in the movie much, but plays a significant role. And that's Ray Winston, who I adore as an actor as well, who I think of in my beloved, the departed and honestly laugh every moment he's on screen. Even when there's nothing funny happening, his performance is Frenchy in that movie. And I don't know what he's doing here. No, I, I don't know what he's doing with that accent. No, I don't know how Ray Winston, this again, formidable presence. And he always has been. And these, these superhero movies always benefit from these really well-known, well-regarded, acclaimed British thespians, you know, coming and performing in their films. And he just feels completely lost at sea. At least that's how I felt watching him. I totally agree. I couldn't understand maybe a third of what he was saying. Quick, briefly on Pew, I, I would agree that I, here's how I put it. She does the best you could possibly do with what she's given. You know, th- this yeah. is as good of a performance as you're going to get of this character. But yeah, Woodstone is, um, he's there symbolically, right? You you mentioned how maybe Shortland was drawn to this material because of the emphasis on female characters and women um, claiming independence from a system that has been manipulating them for many of them all of their lives. And mm-hmm. so Winston is brought in as sort of the the patriarchal boogeyman at the end. So I understand that you need that figure, um, but for how important that is for these feminist themes to land in the last third, I don't think he brings that. I don't think he makes that work as all. And some of it is just practical on the level of, as we've been saying, understanding what he's saying, Mm -hmm. um, understanding the dialogue, but it's just in presence too. And I was surprised by that. I'm curious what you thought of, I thought the movie did, it's hard because, what makes it distinct, and one of the things I admired about it, is how it is bringing us a lot of characters here, including one who's a villain for a while. I won't spoil who it is, but a, a female character who's villainous. Mm-hmm. Um, even she is another um, woman who's kind of being forced to fight in a battle, not of yeah. their own choosing. And I, and you can see how just about every woman character in here is put in that situation. And I liked that they were exploring that theme and how... Um, the battles did not really become the point of this film. It was mm-hmm. more about repairing relationships from the past or even relationships that developed because of the current conflict. And I like that emphasis, but I also at the same time felt that it became a little bit laborious in emphasizing its feminist themes, definitely by the finale. Um, it kind of, you know, really heavy handed and it kind mm-hmm. of undercut what was a little bit more of a subtle theme going on throughout the film. Uh, but I don't know how that struck you. No, I agree with you overall. I also did like it generally as a theme. And I can't believe I'm now going to reference Age of Ultron for a third time in this review. But must be That must be ranked number one on, on that list. No, of your- <laughs> it's really not. I think I was just sort of moderately in favor of that one. So mid-tier at best MCU for me. But it is the one that introduced us to, at least as I recall it, Josh, the haunted past of Natasha Romanoff. And I wrote in my letterboxed blurb review for that movie a paragraph about the controversy that erupted around that time around Joss Whedon. A woman wrote 
an open letter to Joss Whedon and was criticizing him and his work from a feminist perspective. And she was disappointed that we got a mini breakdown, as this writer put it, over the fact that she can't have children. Haven't we gotten to a point where the one lonely female superhero in our current landscape can just pursue the business of avenging without having to bemoan not being a mother? And what I wrote then is that I can understand that criticism, but isn't the fact that she'll never be a mother not really the thing that's driving that mini breakdown? What's really driving it is that she was forcefully sterilized. Yeah, the choice is gone. It's the choice. It's all about, and what's more feminist than that, being angered by the fact that you're having a choice over your own body taken completely away from you. So that that theme of choice with these women is already something that has been planted in the MCU, and it made sense for it to be a key theme explored here. Yeah, and, and another, this is just totally like aesthetic detail, but what I did like with all these women characters is um the different hairstyles you get to so many awesome braids <laughs> and that's something my daughter pointed out as well in this movie and so i do like that element of it and there's even that one sequence the climactic fight sequence where natasha has to take on this squad of other black widows these are basically other women who've been brainwashed mm-hmm. um it's an action sequence without a guy in it. You know, I think at the beginning, Winston is is still there, but once he leaves the scene, it's, you know, an action scene completely filled with, with women, which we, you know, you don't see all that often and certainly not at all, really. I think in the, in the MCU, that fight sequence is maybe one of the only visually interesting, um, sequences, I think in the film, otherwise Shortland here is director pretty much kind of stays in line with the house style of Marvel. Um, but I don't know. You you've seen one of her previous films, Adam. So I, I don't know. Maybe there there isn't enough from that viewing to kind of say if you noticed anything kind of idiosyncratic she brought here, um, or if it does feel a little bit more like a an anonymous directorial effort. Because for me, that's kind of what it looked like. There yeah. was maybe a flash no. here or there, but in terms of aesthetics, it seemed pretty company style. It felt that way to me as well. Even though it would be fair to say that I wouldn't be able to say with too much credence how much it does or doesn't fit into Shortland style just based on that viewing of lore a few years ago and its movie we didn't really talk about on the show I maybe gave a very quick review to there's overhead shots aplenty here I felt like the decision I'm really nitpicking here but the decision to go with that credit sequence version of Nirvana was it smells like teen spirit yeah, Josh yes I believe that's right so was so overwrought and the whole time it's sort of doing work during the credit sequence of filling in the perspective of the cold war and some of these things that that happened to her but it just felt like a greatest hits mishmash of cold war mumbo jumbo and i was already sort of out with the movie at that point and the only real thing i could remember from lore a movie that takes place predominantly outside is the motif here that does come back into play near the end of the film of the lightning bugs. And that that visual shot is something that even though I can't equate it back to an exact shot in lore, nevertheless felt really familiar to me. But other than that decision, and it's one that I can't necessarily say was a profound metaphor for me in watching black widow. I didn't feel like there was much, with this film that was 
any kind of signature touch. I think, if anything, it was maybe more in the themes she was exploring, but not in terms of the overall visual aesthetic. So probably Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok, is still our most idiosyncratic MCU film, Taika Waititi there, kind of really putting his own stamp on it in a way that for all the very talented directors they've been able to bring in, um, you know, not all of these films have been and filmmakers have been able to do. That doesn't mean Ragnarok is necessarily the best. I like it quite a bit, but um, it's interesting that uh, we haven't gotten a lot with really unique personalities like that. I guess it's to be expected with something with a franchise this massive. At some point, we all have to choose between what the world wants you to be and who you are. I made my choice. I'm done running. Black Widow is currently playing in wide release. It's also available on Disney Plus Premier Access. Do you get that in the penthouse, Josh? Premier Access? <laughs> I mean, no, I can't afford it in the penthouse. <laughs> if you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So last year, 4th of July weekend belonged to the filmed version of Hamilton. This year, it was Questlove's music documentary, Summer of Soul. We'll have a review of that, plus Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move and Janixa Bravo's Zola when we come back. Stay with us. I'm going uptown to Harlem, gonna let my hair down in Harlem. If a taxi won't take me, I'll catch a train. I'll go underground, I'll get there just the same. Cause I'm going uptown to Harlem, gonna let my met yesterday and you already trying to take whole trips together be ready by two that's from the trailer for zola which is currently playing in limited release zola was one of the most anticipated films of 2020 at least among the denizens of the film twitterverse i think it even made your top five movie questions of this summer josh is that sounds right yep Okay. The movie stars Taylor Page as Zola, a waitress who agrees to make some quick cash by going on a road trip with an exotic dancer, played by Riley Keough. The plot was inspired by an apparently real-life incident that was originally detailed in an infamous 2015 Twitter thread by Isaiah Zola King. The thread began, y'all want to hear a story about why me and this bitch here fell out? And then there's a bunch of question marks. It's kind of long, but full of suspense. I'm a nickel for every time I've said that on the show. I'm so glad you read that. <laughs> that just made my night. <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm the train monkey. Sam puts words in front of me. I say them. It sounds a little differently in the movie. Let me just say that. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess I will buy that, Josh. I'm the Ron Burgundy of film criticism. <laughs> Zola was directed by Janiska Bravo, whose previous film, 2017's oddball comedy Lemon, you saw and admired. You wrote of Lemon's smartly framed visual comedy, if a bit indulgent in its oddness. Curious what Janiska Bravo will do next. Well, now your curiosity can be satiated. What do you think of what she did next? Well, once I recovered from Zola, Adam, which, uh-huh. which took me a little bit, um, I was very grateful to have some extra time, you know, the, the weekend to kind of think it over. Yeah, she totally lived up to that promise. This is a fascinating, 
formally alone, just how this functions as how do you make a movie that's based on, you know, a series of tweets, right? Well, well, one way you could do it is to evoke the experience of scrolling through social media. And somehow she's managed to do it by, you know, not, not just aping things. There are little examples like you will hear Twitter notification sounds on the soundtrack will, will pop up. And and there's like, there's like screenshot effects where something, the character takes a a photo of something and appears in the bottom of the screen. So it, there's some literal things like that, but really it's the pace of it. It's the, um, the collage aesthetic. It's the fleetness. It's also the amount of meta commentary because everything on social media is just, you know, commenting upon commenting upon commenting. And we are getting that here in the very form of the film. Now I say I had to recover because this story and how much of it is absolutely true or not, I don't know, but it it doesn't really matter. Just sitting through this story, it was so hyperventilating and anxious it felt it felt very similar, Adam, to watching Uncut Gems, the Adam Sandler uh-huh. film, in terms of the anxiety inducing. And I know some people are experiencing this as you know a, a transgressive comedy, a lot of jokes in here. It's very funny at times. I could, I get that, but me personally, basically as this main character, as Zola, who is played in a fantastic performance by Taylor Page, finds herself going to Tampa with people she barely knows and what she thought was going to be like one night of dancing for easy money turns into having to watch this other woman, Stephanie, played by Riley Keough, really be you know put in these increasingly dangerous sex work situations by this mysterious guy named X, played by Coleman Domingo, who also is very good. Uh, the anxiety level just raises and raises and raises. So I, I, I wrote a lot about this on my site, Larson on Film. So I'll point people there and not go on forever. But there are two things I would just say. It's the formal achievement of this that Bravo manages that is fascinating. And it's the way she took this, not just for something like a movie we differed on, Adam, but like Harmony Kareen's Spring Breakers. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just not a piece of provocation. This is really, without demonizing its characters, making you think about the way we live online and what we present online and the gap between that and what we actually experience in real life. And it even expands beyond that. It doesn't really, there are touches in here that makes it clear. This isn't like some sort of social media to demonize social media either. Like this is a basic human thing is that we want to present ourselves as someone false and just the inauthenticity of that, the -hmm. danger of that. this, This is like a really thoughtful movie, even though it's a lot of fun. It is absolutely wild, and it's very funny in parts, too. So so it's definitely one people should check out if they're a little bit hesitant just because, you know, whatever. They think it's just a Twitter movie, or they see the trailer and think it's it's just like, you know, a broad comedy or something like that. But lastly, I just I really want to do say that in this lead role as Zola, Taylor Page, grounds the movie, but also is incredibly funny herself. She's able to somehow do like a, a double take with just her eyes that she uses when all the, when things get crazy around her. So it is really an amazing performance and uh, a pretty great film. Hmm. You know, that notion of exploring the authentic life versus the inauthentic life, how we project ourselves and really thoughtfully exploring that. That's how some of us did feel about Harmony Kareen's Spring Breakers, Josh. I know. We had a good argument about that, but uh, Zola kind of puts that... (laughs) For me, it's kind of like, yeah. Yeah, this is is what you should have been doing. Zola is currently playing in limited release. Now, speaking of formally fascinating, 
it is time for a new film spotting marathon. The subject is Wong Kar Wai. Specifically, we're going to look at the seven titles that make up the new World of Wong Kar Wai collection that was released by the Criterion Collection earlier this year. It has also just been added to the Criterion channel. We thought that would happen, and we were kind of waiting for that moment because then we really felt like it would be the time to dive in here on the show, open it up to maybe a few more listeners who could participate. Wong personally oversaw a restoration of the seven films in anticipation of the box set and a recent tour of art house cinemas. The seven titles in the collection, made between 88 and 2004, are these. As Tears Go By, Days of Being Wild, Chungking Express, Fallen Angels, Happy Together, In the Mood for Love, and then 2046. So we, as longtime listeners know, do these marathons primarily to fill in holes in our cinematic education. We like them to be filled with blind spots, if not exclusively, primarily. How many of these seven have you seen, Josh, and have you reviewed those? Have you given serious thought to yeah. the ones you've seen? Yeah. So In the Mood for Love, of course, 2046, I also saw and reviewed. Uh, same for Days of Being Wild. I could have sworn I've seen Chugging Express. Um, this could be one of those marathon experiences where I sit down to a movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I have seen this, but I never wrote about it. You know, certainly don't remember wrestling with it deeply. So that could be a blind spot for me. And, and yeah, the others really? then are. Yeah. Well, if it is, in fact, a blind spot, that alone justifies this marathon. One totally. of the most yeah. well-regarded films of the last 30 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have seen Chunking Express. I have seen In the Mood for Love. Both movies, I will note, I only went back and saw after starting film spotting and realizing that I desperately needed to see them or I could no longer credibly talk about cinema. 2046 was probably, it It surely was, the first Wong Kar Wai film I had ever seen. I saw it in 2005, I think, the year film spotting started. Sam, our producer, then the host, and I reviewed 2046 on the show. I remember seeing it at the Music Box. That is the one title that we are going to leave out of our marathon. Now, we're completists, so we're going to watch it. We're going to rewatch it, and it may come up when we do our Wong Kar Wai marathon awards, but we're just going to try to keep the schedule a little tidy and we've got some other things we want to fit in. So we're going to focus on the six other films. And again, we'll watch 2046, revisit it and see if it does end up taking away any prizes from the marathon. But I can't wait. Chung King Express and In the Mood for Love are the only other two of the titles I've seen. And we're going to jump on this pretty quickly. Next week, we'll begin with 1988's As Tears Go By. So again, that's available, the new restoration, along with all those other titles on the Criterion channel. So if you're not already a subscriber, and I, I don't know, how many films have we talked about this year, Adam, that have been on yeah, Criterion a channel? A, a bunch. So now would be a good time to give the Criterion channel a shot. Also next week, not a blind spot for us. We're going to do a Sacred Cow review of a title that is 50 years old, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. We have devoted a good chunk of this year already to movies from the 70s, specifically our 7 from 76 series. We have also watched a fair number of 70s movies in preparation for our film spotting Madness this coming 
February and March, and we are focusing on the best of the 1970s. But 1971 was on our radar because it is a 50th anniversary year, and the three titles that stood out to us or have stood out so far that we felt would be most fruitful in terms of revisiting were A Clockwork Orange, Harold and Maude, and The French Connection. So we haven't locked in completely to devoting reviews to the other two, though I think we will. And I think we've even mentioned, Josh, that we were planning on doing the best of 1971, our top five films of that year, yeah. in conjunction with A Clockwork Orange. But if we're going to hold off and we're going to revisit a couple others, I think we should save that 71 top five for a little bit down the road. So next week, Wong Kar Wai and Stanley Kubrick, A Clockwork Orange. Do you remember the last time you saw the film? I've only seen it once, and it had to be college. That That's like, you know... The kind of the college guy has to see mm-hmm. movie if you're interested. Yeah, and in then you film. had to buy the poster. <laughs> I don't think I had the poster, but for your dorm, it's yeah, totally. It's up there with like what uh, Apocalypse Now is probably on that list. And I, I had know. that poster in my dorm. There you go. See, there we <laughs> it was are. The first one I bought. So it's uh, it has been a while, longer than I care to say, Adam. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's been at least ten years. It's probably been fifteen. We'll see how I do watching that one with my daughter Sophie who loves embarking on these cinematic journeys with me. Okay. But you know what? She sat through Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, I was going to say there there have been a few rough ones in the last year. So, all right. Next week, we're also going to get to poll results. The current film spotting poll asks, what's the best basketball movie? NBA finals are underway. I know Sam's into it. We're, We're trying to drag you in, Adam get you a little more into the Mm. NBA. So part of that is our poll. The results so far, I guess there aren't enough 80s basketball kids in our audience. Hoosiers, third place. I would not have guessed that. There are slightly more 90s college kids who have fond memories of watching and rewatching the great smack talker. But I think this is Sam's opinion. Terrible basketball player. Wesley Snipes. It's a fact. It's a fact. Yeah. (laughs) In white men can't jump. That one, second place. Nice. So. Can you guess the basketball documentary currently running away with a poll? This is so film spotting listeners. It's so film spotting. Really? I mean, yeah, of course it's hoop dreams. Perfect. Of course it is. Well, we'll Steve have the... James. You're a legend here. <laughs> we'll have the final results. We'll also share some comments on next week's show. If you still want to vote, try to swing it one way or another. You can do that at filmspotting.net. We did want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Richard Donner, the director of 1978 Superman. One of the movies I most Loved and adored as a child. All four Lethal Weapon movies, The Goonies, The Omen, Scrooged, and Maverick, which came out in 91. James Garner appearing in that one little cameo, maybe as I recall. I can't remember how big of a part he has. Of course, Jodie Foster in that and Mel Gibson as the title character. So 91, still in high school, just really getting into cinema, worked at the local movie theater where Maverick played. And I was starting to get a little snobbier and mm. was thinking this is just kind of that that mass market entertainment yeah. that I'm too smart for. And I remember watching Maverick and being like, wow, that was a good time. <laughs> but you didn't tell anyone. No, I probably didn't. And Twitter and Letterboxd didn't exist then, so I didn't have to admit it to anybody, Josh. I think when it comes to Donner, you know, the conventional wisdom is probably right. And I'm not a completist, but from what I've seen, I've seen a fair amount that Superman is probably his best. I think it's just 
the mastery of tone there, that the gee whiz earnestness that he managed. Uh, I, I always think of that film as like the superhero movie as a Norman Rockwell painting and in a good way. And honestly, like that tone just keeps getting more and more refreshing with each moody, turgid DC entry we get. Uh, Superman just seems more and more fresh. So, so that is top tier Donner. The Goonies, you know, is one of those kind of nostalgia picks for me that I loved as a kid and kind of took a hit watching as an adult, though I still like it. But I do want to um, support those on Twitter I've seen who are championing 1985's Lady Hawk. This is a medieval romantic adventure, stars Rutger Hauer, Michelle Pfeiffer, Matthew Broderick. I've not seen it since 85, but it was right up my alley then. Absolutely worked for me then. I don't know how often it played on HBO, Adam, so I don't know how many times you've seen it. Yeah, I was going to say, Lady Hawk is one of those movies. You want to talk about being able to just pinpoint the primary difference between you and me. We have a lot of similarities. You'd never heard of it before. (laughs) No, no, especially in our love for cinema. There's a lot of crossover. But in 1985, I saw Lady Hawk on my TV screen while flipping channels on HBO approximately 1,027 times. And all 1,027 times, I said... Yeah, that looks like they're wearing cloaks. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't need any of that. Give it to me. I'm going to move on. Give it to me. You love it. You love it. I, I was not as much into the fantasy, <laughs> and I haven't come that far from it. So no, I don't think I have ever seen Lady Hawk. Josh, All right, we'll but get you to love it. it. We'll get to it at some point. Blind okay. spotting, sacred cow. Who blind would spot that? <laughs> Lady Hawk. Top five movie cloaks. Um. Ooh, that's tough. But I like it. It is. I like okay. where you're going. Of course you do. You know, I don't. This counts as a spoiler. It's all coming full circle. Lady Hawk, very much a manimal movie. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Now we're moving on. <laughs> we're going to move on to Cannes. As we're taping this, the Cannes Film Festival has just gotten underway. It opened with the world premiere of Leos Carex's Annette, a musical starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Music by the band Sparks, a cult band that is perhaps marginally more famous now thanks to the new doc by Edgar Wright that's called The Sparks Brothers, recommended here on the show. And I've said I am even more interested in seeing Annette now that I have the foundation of the entire history of Sparks in mind. Early reviews of Annette suggest that we may love it, Josh, or we might hate it. It's it's that kind of movie. Well, and whoever we were in 85, we've come, we've grown into people who are both equally very excited for something like yes. this. I mean, this just yeah. sounds great, right? It does. And the festival runs through the 17th of the month. We will be keeping tabs over the next couple of weeks. I'm sure you'll especially be keeping tabs on Wes Anderson's French Dispatch. Mm. In addition to Cloaks, you're a big fan of Tweed <laughs> and it's, Twee. Plus I mean, just imagine a Tweed cloak, Adam. Uh-huh. Wow, I know what I'm getting you for Christmas now. <laughs> I may have to have it custom made. Nay, I will have to have it custom made. New films from Sean Baker, also playing at Cannes, Julia Ducourneau, Todd Haynes, Andrea Arnold, Mia Hansen Love, and do it, Josh. Do it. A Pichapong Warastakun. Well done. This week, over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's a bonus episode originally recorded for their Patreon channel about the state of streaming movies. Next week, Josh, they'll be back. It's a new pairing, and you have to give them credit. Not only are they watching Summer of Soul, which we'll talk about here in a minute, 
which is a fairly breezy watch, just under two hours, but they're pairing it with Woodstock, which I think does basically last as long as the festival itself did. Oh, I was not aware of that. I see after Summer of Soul, I was thinking I probably got to watch Woodstock now. Have never seen it, obviously, but it, seriously, it's like five hours long or something. Yeah, I'm not going to look it up. I'm going to say it's seven or eight hours long. Out. I don't I don't think that's true, but out. I, I'm just into the hyperbole here to prove my point. Now, here's where you Google it and tell me that it's like 160. I'm almost there. Three hours, four minutes. Okay. I mean, come on. That's I mean, pretty close. That's like that, three hours, seven hours. What's the difference for you? That's like a three month project. So at least, at least <laughs> what's that streaming service that died Quibi or something. Yeah. What was that called? That was... Where you watch things that are like 15 seconds long. That's me watching Woodstock for like three years. <laughs> I'd watch Woodstock. <laughs> the next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcast. More info at nextpictureshow.net. As we're taping this, Josh, we are two days away from Trivia Spotting 12. So by the time most people hear this, the event will actually probably have ended. And it's one of the benefits we give our Film Spotting family members over on Patreon access exclusively to these trivia spotting events. They've been so much fun going back to last August, something that really came about due to COVID and not being able to embark on our live tour to celebrate 15 years of the show. We wanted to connect with our audience. And this is something, as we've said, we're probably going to continue well into the future, whether things are quote unquote back to normal or not. I'm really excited about this one. A very special guest too, going outside the realm. We've done this before. I'll tease it a little bit. Going outside the realm of our usual film critics, writers, podcasters. I'll go ahead and say it. We're going to have a filmmaker, two filmmakers, as part of Trivia Spotting 12. Very exciting. And yeah, as we sit here, it's two days away. So you know I'm deep in training. I have an intense regimen. Uh -huh. I begin about 48 hours out. I'm not going <laughs> to spoil it and tell you, Adam, because it's been so successful for me so uh -huh. far. But right. it, it involves, you know, not much research, just a lot of diet, possibly herbal medicines. Sure. So I'm looking forward to a stellar showing on Friday. Okay. Well, if you do win again, you have won once. Your team has won once, which is more than I can say. Even after, I think, a string of at least two or three second-place finishes in a row, you will have to share that with me, Josh. I will force you to because I want to win. Yes, you do. I want to win <laughs> trivia spotting. And We're really we going to keep doing this. You, you like to act like it's so much fun and it's right. getting a great response and uh -huh. people say how, how much fun they have doing it. Really, it's just going to keep going until you win. I think we will shut it down immediately. So we're going to be like 98 if, and unable yeah. to remember anything, but uh -huh. still playing trivia spotting because you have not won right. yet. Now, everybody who gets randomly assigned to my team, I apologize in advance for that. As I do every week, maybe they'll start trying to actively throw it because they want the events to continue. Oh, Josh. Okay. You that never works know. for me. <laughs> we also offer. A few other benefits, including monthly bonus episodes. We did recently talk about Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout, part of our 70s coming of age, blind spotting. And then July, I am actually genuinely pumped about this. And I feel like, Josh, we've earned it. I feel like after talking about Walkabout, <laughs> yeah. after talking about three women from Robert Altman, and I like both of these movies quite a bit, but they are a little heavy. Mm -hmm. They are movies that you wouldn't exactly call a great time. 
even if that's not completely fair to something like Altman's Three Women, perhaps, I need something a little breezy, like a Bond film. And we were actually planning a Bond marathon, a mini Bond marathon, instead of Wong Kar Wai, to prepare for No Time to Die coming out. And Sam had a good idea, which was to kind of just transfer over the Bond Marathon to our bonus content for family members. So if you want to hear us reckon with a few Bond movies that we've never talked about on the show, becoming a member of the Film Spotting family, $5 a month gets you those benefits and a few others. You can exclusively access those conversations. And we are starting at the beginning. We're going to hit each Bond. I say that. I guess we'll see whether or not we really do get to George Lazenby. But we're definitely going to get to Sean Connery. We're starting at the beginning. And... We've got Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, the first three Bond movies. Now, I don't know if you've looked, Josh, but which of those three do you think film spotting listeners would vote for? Which one do you think we were surely going to discuss? And do you know which one is actually in the lead? No, this this is new to me. I didn't realize it had been posted. I'm going to say uh, Goldfinger is w- what they're voting for. I also felt like it was a slam dunk. Lock of all locks that it would be Goldfinger. And if not Goldfinger, maybe Dr. No, because some would say, start at the beginning, watch the first Connery, and that would have made sense to me. But Goldfinger, if you look at a lot of lists, it's considered maybe the best Bond, or certainly in the top three. I don't think it's ever out of the top five. I was sure it was going to win. And it's not a total blowout, but it's also not that close. From Russia with Love is winning, Josh. And I love that because it's the one of the three I haven't seen. So I always prefer to knock out a blind spot, but it's winning. And again, it's winning pretty decisively. And in the comments, people are like, no, this is the best Bond movie or one of the best Bond movies. You absolutely need to see it. Wow. See, see, I was thinking the opposite, that maybe it was being voted on because it's the one that family members had not seen and they were doing the same what we'd like to do. Not but, from the comments so far. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't think I have seen that one. Obviously have seen the other two. So that works out just fine for me if that holds. Bond and other benefits available to you now by becoming a film spotting family member because we we adore the Fast and Furious movies so much. We were inspired to call it the film spotting right. family. We should change the picture from the Royal Tenenbaums <laughs> to... Dom and crew, shouldn't we, Josh? We really, really should. Patreon.com slash film spotting is where you can sign up. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. I love Marge. You love me. You're not marrying me. Tom, I don't love you. No, I don't mean that as a threat. To be honest, I'm, I'm a little relieved you're going. I think we've seen enough of each other for a while. What? You can be a leech. You know that. And it's boring. You can be quite boring. Jude Law there with Matt Damon in 1999's The Talented Mr. Ripley, written by Anthony Minghella, based on the Patricia Highsmith novel, and it was also directed by Minghella. Along with that massacre, we reviewed Pixar's Luca, and we wrapped up our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series with our 7 from 76 awards. So why that scene from Talented Mr. Ripley? Well, here's Brendan Fitzpatrick in Washington, D.C. First, he says, congratulations on the flawless Zoolander read last show. I didn't write in, but knew it immediately and laughed about it a lot (laughs) the last couple of weeks. There you go. That's what you come to film spotting for, the laughs. Mm -hmm. 
Josh. I like pretty flawless. Sure this week, I, I haven't, yeah. you know, I don't think we've gotten a lot of notices I, on our performances think, that say flawless, but I'll take I it. Think, I think that was the deep well of emotion I brought forth yeah. doing John Voight. Yeah, that's and right. It, it wasn't it wasn't your imitation of Derek Zoolander at all. No, I was thinking of your void. Absolutely. Okay, good. Brendan says, pretty sure this week's is the talented Mr. Ripley. I didn't get it until the very end when a little of Jude Law's preppy accent slipped in with the word boring. Yes, that's where you brought it, Josh. Obvious connection to Luca. Matt Damon infiltrates the life of Dickie Greenleaf as he's living in a seaside town in Italy, pretending to be someone he isn't much like our friends, Luca and Alberto. Also, the friendship triangle of Luca, Alberto, Julia could map pretty well to Damon, Law and Paltrow in Mr. Ripley. Mm. Also, no spoilers, but a couple of important scenes involving a spear gun in both films. Well done, Brendan. That's true. All right. We heard from Dr. Liam Todd, who shared, Laws, you can be quite boring, is a gift that gets used against me a little too frequently. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Liam. Yeah, I just I just wanted to give Dr. Liam Todd a forum for to that. share to express that bit of kind of self-deprecation and we're going to say it's unfair. Yeah, absolutely. We don't know unfair. you, but it's unfair. I absolutely. Hope, I hope you feel better, Liam, after sharing that. <laughs> Reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner, Josh. Our winner is Jared R in Springfield, Missouri. Congratulations, Jared R. Tell us your full name, your address, and write in feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. Time now for this week's edition of Massacre Theater, where we are going to massacre a movie that off-air just a second ago I admitted I had never seen, and you admitted <laughs> was actually good, not just me good. <laughs> Do you want to explain? Um, well, this is, you know, I will. This is something I would only say to you because you're skeptical uh -huh. of all my recommendations. Yes. My instinct was that it's really good. This movie's really good. And then I realized that's not going to mean anything to you. So I had to say no. <laughs> like, right. most people think it's good. That's, that's true. Yeah. So I have always been a little guilty, just felt a little guilty that I've never seen this movie. We will see if you can get the connections to this week's show. They are pretty obvious. And- we're sure you'll come up with a few that aren't so obvious even to us. I'm going to start it off. You're going to give me the action. I don't know that I'm ready, but let's go for it. And action. Um, did I miss something? Are we, are we going into battle? Lady, there's something out there. Something underneath that sand. Yes, well, I'm hoping to find a certain artifact. A book, actually. My brother thinks there's treasure. What do you think is out there? In a word, evil. The Bedouins and the Tuaregs believe that Homenoptera is cursed. Oh, look, I don't believe in fairy tales and hokum, but I do believe that one of the most famous books in history is buried out there, the Book of Amun-Ra. It contains within it all the secret incantations of the Old Kingdom. It's what first interested me in Egypt when I was a child. It's why I came here, sort of a life's pursuit. And the fact that they say that it's made out of pure gold makes no never mind to you, right? You know your history. I know my treasure. And, and <laughs> scene. scene. That was that was a little 
That was a little Stallone-ish to me, Josh. I felt it. I know. As soon as I started, I was like, too much Stallone. And I, you know, you he is pull back. I mean, he's such a charismatic performer, Adam. I just figured he, I have to go he with is, it. I know that. I'm glad you admit <laughs> that, Josh. Um, by the way, I compliment you. That was very good. You may have aged her about 50 years. But, <laughs> I did, didn't I? <laughs> but, I did. but otherwise, otherwise impressive. Yeah, usually my British women, I think I tend to err on the younger side, and I went I went more sophisticated here, Josh. <laughs> yes, you did. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, July 9th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks, and no, I was not playing Stallone. Are you ready, black people? Are you really ready? Are you ready to listen to all the beautiful black voices, the beautiful black feeling, the beautiful black waves moving in beautiful air? Are you ready, black people? Are you ready? Oh, my. Nina Simone in the trailer there for the new concert doc Summer of Soul, which is currently playing in limited release and exclusively over on Hulu. It's the directing debut of Questlove, best known as co-founder of The Roots and the band leader for Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show. I will just ask you this right off the top, Josh. How great is Summer of Soul? And Sam wants me to give you these options. Great, really great, or all-time great. Fair, fair. With confidence, I can say right now, really great. And then, yeah. you know, all-time great, you got to let it simmer. You, you got to let it sit. You got to revisit, which I absolutely would do. I've already revisited the, you know, Spotify has a couple playlists made up of all these songs, and that's been playing on a loop so yeah, yeah this is this is wow the soundtrack of 1969 in harlem the soundtrack of our summers i think josh a little background in the summer of 69 the same summer as woodstock the harlem cultural festival hosted a series of concerts to over 300,000 mostly black audiences the lineup features some of the best known artists in pop r&b jazz blues funk and gospel mahalia jackson and the staple singers, B.B. King, Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stone, and many more. The film's subtitle, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, is a reference to the fact that these historic concerts held only a year after the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and the violent riots that followed have not been seen in over half a century. Fifty years, these tapes and this footage was sitting in somebody's storage locker, Josh, or a basement or attic. The performances are inarguably great and i think maybe a good place to start is how successfully do you think questlove puts these performances into their historic context and how effective is he at weaving these interviews in with the performances including interviews with people who attended the festival some of the performers themselves and other cultural commentators well, that's exactly what puts it automatically in the really great category and yes. gives it the potential for all-time great because this isn't just a collection of phenomenal phenomenal lost footage that you could drop in any format and sit there with your jaw open because it does have that. But what Questlove has managed to do, his filmmaking team, probably worth highlighting the editor here, Joshua L. Pearson, is exactly give us the context we need that... Mm -hmm provides political import to this project, gives it the resonance that it has, and makes us see why it's still important today. Um, and here are some examples. From Tiny Details, I loved the use of superimposed imagery that was going on here, which I'm assuming is something they did for this documentary. Now, perhaps 
Maybe it was in the original footage, but I doubt it. I think it was more raw footage. And so, for example, you'll see Stevie Wonder's foot on the pedal suddenly kind of merge with his fingers on the keyboard. Mm-hmm. And for me, it just kind of added to this out-of-body experience of witnessing live music that you have when you're there, when you can see those things. And when it's not necessarily, you know, a lot of concert docs, the unimaginative ones are just that. Put the camera down, show us the concert. But when you're at a concert, that's not how you experience it, right? You're, especially if you're up close, you're looking at this detail. You're watching this musician. You're watching what they're doing with that instrument. And it's all kind of melding. And so visually, Questlove manages to do that here. But overall, if you take a wider view I was so impressed with how this documentary is almost arranged and structured like a symphony would be with separate Mm. movements. So when each act comes up, they get their own story. And sometimes it's a personal story, like The Fifth Dimension, best known for Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In. We learn all about, and to my shame, a lot of this was new to me, Adam. You you know, you made the comment how this is like the background to our summers. Yes, it was, but not enough. It was, it was too much background. Like we, we were miss, at least I was missing the social and political foreground that was there that I just didn't know about. So for example, mm-hmm. the fifth dimension talk about, they performed, you know, what you could call psychedelic pop and found it difficult to be accepted in that way by different audiences. So they come to this festival in Harlem, largely black audience and are wondering how is this going to go over? And so Questlove has contemporary interviews with, uh, I think it's Marilyn McCoo, member of the fifth Mm -hmm. dimension who says, you know, they were nervous to play this fest. And then in interspersed with all this, we're seeing their performance where they're just killing it. And then it ends with her saying, you know, we were hoping they would receive us and you're witnessing that they did receive them. And so that's one story. And then how about briefly later on, he intercuts the staple singers singing. It's been a change with news footage of the moon landing, which occurred right in the midst of the festival, right? Yeah. So how's that for historical context? And this is so great. We get newsreel interviews with the festival attendees at the time who are being asked, what do you make of the moon landing, you know, at the festival? And they're, they're yeah. like, you know, giving it the side eye. They're like, what, you know, the government is spending money to go to the moon when people in our neighborhood can't afford food. And, and this just reframes American history in, in a crucial way while, again, all in the backdrop of the staple singers doing It's Been a Change, which is just lending kind of the musical thematic import to it. So long answer. Sorry, but I'm yeah. really excited about this film. And, and that's the crux of it. You know, your question is the crux of it. That is why this is artistic in ways that uh, maybe we might not have expected. We might have thought mm-hmm. we're getting some great concert footage nobody would seen before. We're getting a heck more than that. Yeah. Before answering the question myself... I'll just say that the sequence you mentioned there where they talk about the moon landing, it's one where you talk about just your your own perspective and how limited it is. When you first start to hear the members of the audience who are talking to the TV cameras and saying that being on the moon doesn't mean anything to them and they're being as dismissive of it as they are, it's easy to kind of go, really? <laughs> the The moon landing? And yet one of the ways you can praise this movie is to say that it absolutely allows you to understand enough about the experience of this community that you you do understand that perspective. And they also explain it very well to the reporter they're speaking to. But at the same time, you absolutely come away feeling like you understand so much more about the circumstances that would actually create that 
perception and that disillusionment with what really white America was celebrating at that time. A couple other quick touches that I thought of just based on things you were saying. The moment that stood out to me as minor as it is, but just kind of gets at how big and momentous this festival was or should have been forgotten. As we said, footage went into a box. Really, not a lot of us ever knew it happened. It was this thing that as one person on camera says, it was like they always thought, was I crazy? Was I really there? And the footage now brings it back that they that they weren't crazy, that this really did happen. And as much as it builds up how significant these many performances were over five or six weeks in Harlem, and and they were that significant, once they come out of the opening kind of prelude, there's a moment, really the first kind of moment you hear before Stevie Wonder plays, I think, is someone comes on a loudspeaker, and I wrote it down today, and now I'm going to get it wrong, but... There's a name and it's something like, Ann Williams, your wallet has been found. Oh, yeah, right. Please come claim your wallet. And and there was something about that 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 just deflated it all in the in the right way. You know, exactly the right way of saying as big as this was, it was also this very kind of personal thing. Communal. For this it, it community makes it of feel, people. Yeah, very communal, right? That's it, yeah. right? And the sound too, we're talking about the footage and how masterfully Questlove and his filmmaking team put it together but the sound of the music alone is incredible that that it exists at all and then has been mastered or whatever process has been done to make it sound as good as it does and of course i'm putting the bulk of the credit on the musicians themselves but the fact that it just really sounds so good coming through your tv speakers if there were no visuals at all Right. I could just imagine it, <laughs> yeah. right? I would just I would watch this movie on a blank screen and just listen to it. But to go back to what you're saying, and I am probably just going to rephrase a lot of your praise, Josh. If Questlove was merely a great curator, a selector of magical material and moments from this incredible array of musicians, then Summer of Soul would be a worthwhile experience. The fact though that he was both a great curator and storyteller makes it something far greater. The shorter version of that, I would have been okay with this just being a quote-unquote concert film. And obviously, talking head interviews can, in documentaries, often feel like a crutch and not really be used creatively. But he matches the music and the performances with the people contextualizing them and sharing their personal experience so precisely that he doesn't just tell the story of this festival or one tumultuous year. He does ultimately get at the entire story of the civil rights and black struggle in America. This festival becomes a microcosm for a movement. But more than that, you said it was like symphony with movements. Questlove gives appropriate time to all of the actual movements within that larger struggle. So you'll get the anti-war exploration to the rhythm of a drum solo that's happening within a performance by the Chambers Brothers, a song called Uptown. And just the rhythm, the cutting to that is some of the best filmmaking I've seen this year. We'll get the exploration of the empowerment of black women within this struggle, of Black Panthers, of Afro-Cuban and Afro-Puerto Rican heritage, the pride in African heritage that really takes hold in the black community in 1969. Max Roach and Abby Lincoln perform All Africa. Max Roach, honestly, one of my idols as a jazz drummer. And I'm leaving a few out. They're all represented on stage 
they were all represented at that festival. So Questlove finds a way to represent them appropriately and powerfully within the movie. And as you're even, you know, referencing those performances, it it reminds me of the experience where movies will give you chills, right? At certain times. And then you kind of feel like, oh, it subsides. And it's like, that was like the moment. This is an experience where they like just compound. Like one one kind of fades and then you'll get the next act or two acts later. Like you're having the same experience again. There are just so many highs in this film. I think for me, it was probably... You know, Mahalia Jackson, when she invites a very young Mavis Staples, a mm-hmm. shockingly young Mavis Staples, to share the microphone on uh, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. That was a highlight for me. And, you know, another number clearly not meant for me, but one that still managed to give me chills was uh, Nina Simone. I think it was the end of her set when she, it's a poem actually by David yeah. Nelson that she kind of musically riffs on. And that's what we heard at the top here. Are you ready, black people? And that's. I think that resonated because what she's doing there is it's this exhortation to take history into one's own hands. And what this documentary, what Summer of Souls shows is how that did not happen with this time in history. This event in history, uh, you said how, you know, this footage sat in a box and it did, and that's correct, but it was put in a box. And and by Mm. that, I mean, you know, we hide history or erase history for different reasons. We're seeing it right now. You know, there, there are elected officials who do not want to talk about the fact that the United States Capitol was attacked earlier this year I know. by a MAGA and, and mob. I process this every day or right? I try to, and my brain can't. I, I can't do it. But but yeah. we're seeing the, the not the opposite of that, but a variation on that. So that's an example of people wanting to rush to deny and move on, quote unquote, move on from something in history to hide something shameful. And what, what happened with this concert, it seems, is that there were, it was to obscure something beautiful. And it was chosen to do that because it doesn't fit the agenda of the powers that be. To see this much black talent on display, this variety mm-hmm. of talent on display at a time when it was actively attempting to be suppressed during the civil rights movement. I mean, that is that is a political agenda. And I don't know the historical details of, you know, what decisions were made, how, what happened to the footage, whose hands it went through. But I guarantee you it wasn't just like, eh, there's no audience. There was more, there's more at play there in suppressing this material. Yeah. And so the fact that we have it, that's what makes it relevant today is to go back to your comments about the attendees who are interviewed and they are so, all of them are so eloquent about their memories. Um, There's one man who, I think it's a man who says something like, we needed that music and he's putting it in the context of the 1960s, right? And what Questlove has done is now show us that we still need that music. Like we, we, you know, th- this country yeah. needs it as much as ever. And so it's just another, this is why the movie has the potential to be one of those all-time greats is because it has that political import going on as well, in, in addition to the artistry. Forget the artistry and what's being expressed on stage. As one interview subject says early on, they recall just seeing the sea of black people. That sea of black people in itself is a political act, right? Just congregating in that space and celebrating their culture and their community. Now, you got into what I was going to prompt you with, which was those favorite moments, those chill moments. You listed a few. Were there any others that stood out for you? You you took a few of mine, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, really Nina Simone's whole set 
I think. The whole set. Was because she also, it kind of climaxes in that reading poem, but she sings, I think she starts with Backlash Blues. Backlash Blues. And then moves into To Be Young, Gifted, young, gifted and, and Black. So, I, I, you know, in, there's three right there. <laughs> just, yeah. Just from her set and her presence. I, I've, you know, I've listened to a fair amount of her music, but this co- goes back to my shame of not really, you know, fully understanding what was behind it all the time and seeing the presence she has as an onstage performer was so incredibly powerful. And I got to say, I was going to ask you actually, Adam, if there was an act here that an artist who you felt like you knew and mm-hmm. after seeing this, you realized maybe not dramatic, like, oh, I never really knew them, but but mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, I got to listen to more of of that person because for me, and this was another highlight. It was Stevie Wonder. You know, I just kind of, Stevie Wonder just always kind of in my background no, was like, yeah. what a, you know, a nice no. guy, great story, no, fun music. Genius, like right. capital G. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, so his, his um, performance as well really jumped out at me. No, that's a great one. I think I have, I have two potential answers to that question. One real one. And then one other performer and performance that I want to single out that, that caught me off guard a little bit. And it was B.B. King, Why I Sing the Blues. Mm. Now, B.B. King has been part of our collective conscious for decades, obviously, and I've seen a fair number of his performances on TV. I have always admired his work, but I have never really enjoyed it because I'm just not a big blues guy. Blues is not the, the music I go to. And yet that performance, maybe it was, honestly, Josh, partly seeing it in the context of this overall festival and the context that... Questlove puts it in in terms of the story it's expressing. I first got the blues, they brought me on a ship that was men standing over me. And a lot more with the wheels, and everybody wanted to know. Everybody wanted to know why I'm singing the blues. I've been around a long time, people out really that song connected with me in a way that bb king's music never has before and the the power of his performing abilities as a singer and guitar player just seemed so on display in that moment that that's one that stood out to me and i think another one that was a little bit revelatory because i think i maybe always had a little stronger sense than you did of stevie wonder and his immense immaculate talent for me it was sly and the family stone oh so great The band. The band. That's it, right? So it's like Sly and Family Stone's egalitarianism in addition to the music itself. Because I knew some of those songs. I, of course, knew Everyday People. I knew they were catchy. I knew they were funky. It's not like I didn't appreciate Sly and the Family Stone. But my eagerness now to really dive into the catalog and listen to them after seeing them in this documentary, seeing the depth of his talent, realizing that he wasn't just a really funky performer and talented pop songwriter, but someone who really was a prodigious musician. That really caught my eye and my ear. In addition to, as we were saying, the fact that he comes out on stage with a band that has two women in it and two white men in it. Mm -hmm. And the ethos of his music was 
expressed there in the band as well. But in terms of the truly chill-inducing moments, and there's a real strong contender that our producer Sam mentioned in our newsletter this week, which is when Dorothy Combs comes out with the Edwins Hawkins singers and sings Oh Happy Day, this gospel song that became a huge hit in 69. And the way she starts singing it originally, she's got this very low voice. And it's almost a little quiet. And it's not what you equate with gospel singing. And then when the song really gets going. Man, does she belt it. That's really good. But that's maybe just on the outside looking in for me, Josh. The the top three here, I couldn't rank the others into a top five. So I'm going to give you the top three. And you've actually touched on all of them. Number three is when Mahalia Jackson hands the mic to Mavis, or depending on how you look at it, Mavis takes the mic (laughs) from (laughs) Mahalia Jackson because she even says when she gave the mic back to me, oh, she likes what I'm doing. That that validation, her remembering that and reflecting on it, those generations colliding, the way she revered her, but expressed that reverence, the way she performed with her, but also didn't hold back at all. The generations there, just like they were in the crowd, they're colliding on stage and they're embracing each other and they're collaborating on the song Take My Hand, Precious Lord. And Mahalia Jackson, according to Mavis Staples, said, I'm not feeling so well. I'm going to need you to really run with this. I'm going to give you the mic. You're going to get to be the star of the show. And then the way she turns it over to Mahalia, and then there's a point where Mahalia actually does put the mic back in her face and Mavis kind of takes it from her. Yeah. And and she she allows that to happen. The great Mahalia Jackson right. allows that to happen. I got emotional watching it on behalf of Mavis Staples reliving that moment. That's the drama of that sequence is you know there's artistic ego at play, but you know there's also mentoring at play. And, yes. And, and there's ambition at play on the behalf of Mavis. So all of these things are kind of circulating together in, and, and the result is just this, you know, all-time performance. Man, I'm telling you, that was the time of my life. When she gave me that microphone back, I said, oh, she likes what I'm doing. My number two is the fifth dimension redemption, I'm calling it, where you see that performance, but you see the faces of Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. as they watch themselves. Yes, They relive those moments. They relive that performance. Obviously, they haven't seen it themselves either they experienced it but they've never seen that performance until now and we get to experience that viewing along with them and the line that he says actually i think Marilyn says is we were so happy to be there because as you noted they felt like there was a separation between them and the black community a lot of people thought they sounded white they really hadn't been embraced they were maybe a little nervous even coming to that stage and they really wanted to prove themselves this for them was like maybe the most important performance of their careers up to that point and maybe ever and then to just experience it with them as they deliver and the the joy and the emotion on their face that's really really powerful and then the number one it's it's nina simone i mean For me, 
it's actually that first number. It's Backlash Blues. Mm. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, who do you think I am? You raise my taxes and freeze my wages, send my only son to Vietnam. You give me second-class houses, second-class schools. I know you think that all colored people are just second-class fools. A song that is as overtly political as anything that emanates from that stage. Maybe the most explicitly political song, but it's also as funky and as soulful as any other song we hear throughout Summer of Soul. And you're right about Nina Simone. It's just her presence. When I think about artists, if you just sit back and you think about what it means to consider someone an artist, they are fearless. They are going to express themselves no matter what. They are going to be true to themselves in every moment. Oh, and they also have immense talent. I could probably throw in 15 to 20 more superlatives. I had a little bit of background with Nina Simone because I watched the documentary. I think it's called What Happened Miss Simone that came out in 2015 or 2016. I was familiar with her, but I didn't really understand any of the things I even just said there very quickly about who she was and how incredibly talented and important she was. With that background, knowing she's coming to the stage, I was I was bracing for it. And man, does she not disappoint. Oh, she's a force. Can I give you one more um, new appreciation? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's actually the pips. So Gladys Knight and the pips. So good. <laughs> come and perform, right? And they, in the background, are just doing these phenomenal routines. I think I think one of the attendees said, didn't they say at one point, remember it, and the pips were working. <laughs> I think that's just that's, like, right. that's the best way to say it. Like they were it is. they were working hard and they were fantastic. We could go on and on about Summer of Soul. If you haven't seen it yet, we encourage you to do so again out now in theaters, which is really now where I need to go and see this movie again. Yeah, and really. Not watch it, not watch it on Hulu as I did. We also caught up with the new Steven Soderbergh thriller, No Sudden Move. That's currently playing exclusively on HBO Max. Can't go to the theater, can only watch it on TV. I don't know how up-to-date you are with Soderbergh, Josh. We reviewed Logan Lucky in 2017. We did talk about Unsane in 2018 on the show. High Flying Bird did not talk about The Laundromat, though I think I saw it and was disappointed by it. I think we both skipped Let Them All Talk in 2020, those last two with Meryl Streep. And of course, there is this last year's Oscar telecast, which I know you saw. And I skipped. Yeah, I did see that. But previous to that, I was on a bit of a Soderbergh break. I mean, Logan Lucky, you know, mildly positive on, I would say the same for Unsane, had issues with High Flying Bird, which might come up in our discussion here, as a matter of fact. And then, yeah, took a pause on those last two. So I wasn't mm. going to miss this, though, with the cast. Sure. I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, let's get to No Sudden Move. It's a film noir in the tradition of movies like Chinatown and The Big Sleep. The plot starts complicated and gets only more complex as it goes on. It's set in 1950s Detroit. 
and it features low-level criminals Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro. They're hired to babysit a middle-class white family while the husband, David Harbour, is driven to work to fetch a confidential and valuable document. Of course, things do not go as planned. Along the way, we meet characters played by Ray Liotta, Amy Simons, Brendan Fraser, John Hamm, Bill Duke, and others. This is a movie that not only reunites Soderbergh with Cheadle and Del Toro, it also returns the director to a genre and a location, Detroit, of a film that we adore, one of his very best 1998s out of sight. It does also include an element of Soderbergh's work that's been there from pretty early on, how crime intersects with industry, capitalism, and the law. You can go back to traffic, Aaron Brockovich, side effects, the informant, to name just a few. Now, I do want to know generally how this all worked for you, but even as we mention that this is set in the 50s and that it's in the tradition of classic noirs like Chinatown and neo-noir that came in the 70s and the big sleep from the 1940s, I wonder, Josh, if you felt like our fairly recent 40s noir marathon actually fairly neatly prepped you for No Sudden Move. I mean, it probably set a bar, a high bar that No Sudden Move, it would have been hard for it to meet. And it it doesn't really meet it. I, I don't think this is, you know, a stellar entry in the noir genre. But I do want to start with the things I liked about it, because overall, it's probably going to fall, you know, where so much of recent Soderbergh has for me, which I just kind of went through, is there's too, the guy's too talented to not appreciate um, what he's interested in and what he's after and how he goes about it. But then there are just some things that kind of hold me back where I just can't go as far, I think, you know, where you are in in being a fan of his. But what he did really well in this is decide to work again with Don Cheadle. <laughs> and I think um, yeah. he and Del Toro, just their interplay as these two guys who um, don't want to give too much away, but end up in over their heads in this plot and are kind of stuck together and have mm-hmm. to figure their way out of it, even though they don't really trust each other. That was the highlight for me, both of them together, but particularly Cheadle, who I don't know how old he is now. And so if this is like, you know, just kind of where his voice is at or if it's an affectation he put Mm -hmm. on for this role but i loved the growl he had here the gravel me too he puts in his voice he's playing Mm -hmm. this you know uh formerly incarcerated guy who's who's out so he is a little bit older he's been around the block he knows all the criminals in detroit he knows who connects with who but at the same time he's going to He's going to play into everyone's assumptions about him and how they're going to underestimate him, right, to his advantage. And that includes Del Toro's character. And so it's just such a smart, slippery performance and so witty, too. I love the moment. This is when he and Del Toro are out together now. They're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. They have a car. They're making some stops. And Del Toro just kind of says, can I have the keys? When they, you know, and what does Cheadle do? Beat that look and just this low gravelly laugh. Like I'm not even going <laughs> to dignify that with the response. And he has that attitude throughout. It's an, an incredible performance. And um, yeah, maybe my favorite thing about the movie, though I do want to also highlight briefly uh, David Holmes score, which yeah. is um, just this jaunty kind of noirish pleasure. Oh, uh, yeah. The beats it's hitting. It's familiar. It's not like revolutionary. You can hear a little Ennio Morricone in it. You can also hear, I think, a little Angelo Battlementi in it. They kind of mm-hmm. merge mm-hmm. in some of the yeah. in some of the the music, and it's just perfect for, for what Soderbergh's trying to do. So that's that's yeah. what I liked about it. I, I'll, yeah. I'll pause and there. It's appropriate 
to the material, it feels like. It feels like it is related in some way to the work he did in Out of Sight, David Holmes, but not the same thing and certainly not derivative. It is a little more a little more jagged and just a little more eerie, I suppose, a little more jangly. And there are other similarities, I think, to Out of Sight, not just in terms of the kind of overall milieu, but the monochrome look to the city Soderbergh gives whenever they're outside, certainly kind of that gunmetal blue, the mm-hmm. grays. It, it almost feels like you're kind of existing in an auto plant. There's kind of a coldness to it. And we get that in those scenes, those scenes, especially that take place outdoors in Detroit and out of sight and in this movie. Now, I know you did just get done saying the things you liked about the movie and you haven't gotten into its flaws yet. But I will say that knowing it's coming, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. I've had three hosts on Film Spotting over now almost 16 years, Josh, and all three of you appreciate Soderbergh. You respect Soderbergh because, as you said, how can you not? But you don't embrace him. You just don't embrace Steven Soderbergh the way I do. Maybe maybe host number four, Josh, that will be my only criteria when I do the auditions. <laughs> Is, All right. Just tell hey, me how you feel about Soderbergh. Rank his movies. You'll find that person. He's got he's, maybe he, he, Soderbergh has a cult. I mean, and I need you to explain yeah. it to me. Like, obviously, I know it in Out of Sight. I know it in The Limey. Right. I know it in Ocean's Eleven. Aaron Brockovich. You know the, the films of his that I really, really go for. But then there are some where there are specific choices he makes, and they they're just like the brakes go on yeah, on I the experience. It. Well, first I'll say that. We're in lockstep on what the best thing about the movie is. And it's funny because I wouldn't necessarily compare this movie in any way to Black Widow other than the fact that David Harbour appears in both. But it's a good antidote to Black Widow. And I did watch it right after Black Widow. It's a movie about characters who insist on trying to exert their free will despite living in a world in which they have none. And they themselves are never insistent. And this gets into Cheadle's performance, how methodical the movie is. I will not say slow because that wasn't my experience with it, but how methodical it is and how methodical and reserved Cheadle is. Maybe a better word is how measured he is. And Del Toro too. Obviously we've seen Del Toro be an actor who likes to get a little big. And I like those performances. I've never thought of Cheadle really as a big performer, though I can certainly point to some characters where he exhibits a lot more bravado. But then you see here how he modulates his performance as Kurt. And it's funny you mentioned how old he is. Watching the movie with Sophie and my wife, Sarah, this came up and I looked it up and he's 57, I think, is is what I saw. Okay. And yet you see him in other movies that have come out fairly recently. And it is definitely part of this performance, him putting on that voice you mentioned. Let's dispense with the bullet. We got the document. You want it, and it's yours for a price. But it's a new price. What new price? Twice the bounty you're getting for us. <laughs> it's like he he always talks, not only with that kind of grit to it, that that low growl, but it's almost like he's whispering. He really never mm. gets above a certain decibel level, and it it all just suggests, and that's how the whole movie moves for me. Again, very different than Out of Sight or Ocean's Eleven or some of those other films. It's like 
Soderbergh is trying to play with kind of how still he can make it despite all these twists and turns and despite all the the crazy plot stuff that is happening and how wild it actually gets on screen sometimes, including the violence. He's going to keep it as low and as measured as as Cheadle is. And it does suggest this kind of world weariness. He doesn't have to raise his voice. He knows the shot or he knows most shots. He has seen it all. He has experienced it all. There is a weight on him that Cheadle carries in every aspect of this performance. So we agree on that. I think the the thing that maybe I'll defend preemptively here, because I wonder if this is the thing, it's always the thing that the non-Soderbergh apologists out there go to, is they focus on some of those decisions, those filmmaking choices, that seem to be elements that maybe Soderbergh is employing because... He kind of can't help himself. He's a great experimenter. He's someone who wants to play with different types of techniques. He wants to work within different types of genres. He'll use very specific equipment, even if it's a little bit distracting or a lot distracting. It's kind of the debate Sam and I have always had about Soderbergh. And he'll even reluctantly kind of admit it, though I think as time goes on, he doesn't feel as much this way anymore. Soderbergh's one of those filmmakers where When you watch his films, if you do feel like the technique is a little distracting, if you do feel like it's calling too much attention to itself or he's just kind of playing around and there's something there's something maybe of substance that's missing, you wonder if, well, maybe that's true, but maybe I just didn't get it. Sam and I have always joked that we're the problem. We respect him so much and we recognize the talent so much that if it doesn't connect with you, well, maybe maybe we just got it wrong because Soderbergh really knows what he's doing. And there's that element here in terms of the visual technique, the canted angles that are familiar to noir, overhead shots, underneath shots. There's there's a wide assortment of different techniques that he employs. The big thing, though, would be those anamorphic lenses he's using that give the whole thing this fisheye-like appearance. And Maybe that's something Josh will get into here that didn't work for you. There's another thing that Soderbergh does here, which is he, near the end, adds an element that I think some watching this film probably feel as if it's kind of tacked on, where we get a speech and we get Cheadle's character even imparting something that suggests that all of a sudden all the wheeling and dealing he's been doing and all of the trickery And everything he's done to try to collect this money isn't just about, you know, survival or greed or whatever, but there's something larger driving it that he has other other motivations, perhaps. And that kind of comes out of nowhere. And so on one hand, anyone who suggests that I absolutely get it. The explicitness of these characters futility, this story of American capitalism, the powerful exploiting the powerless, that is something that maybe feels, like I said, a little bit tacked on, something to elevate the movie beyond mere entertainment, try to make it into a smart movie, if you will. And on the other hand, I wonder, as one of those Soderbergh apologists, as one of those people who always thinks, if something does feel amiss, well, it's my fault. I wonder if it's really a case where it's not, it's not missing up to that point. I just wasn't looking for it, or I wasn't identifying it for what it is. And when you think back on all those things we talked about with Cheadle's performance as Kurt and his his cynicism, his reticence, his quietness, every dismayed look he 
he flashes at a crazy white man in the film. This is this is a man who who knows where he stands and yet dares to try to take advantage of a situation when he can. And so I guess I would say the politics of it that come into play in this movie, they're actually maybe there. <laughs> they're really there in every frame of this movie. It just isn't explicit until the end of the film. So I don't know if that was an issue for you or if it was the filmmaking or both. Josh, hit me with it. Well, I would say that the fact that you've preemptively correctly, specifically identified the two major problems with this film might be evidence that there are two major problems with this film. Fair enough. I mean, I I totally get the, and I want to bring all respect to a filmmaker, especially one as brilliant as Soderbergh, as you say, and interrogate myself. But then I do need to hear from the apologists a little bit more about, okay, what am I missing here? And, and I think, you know, you bring up some good points there when it comes to Cheadle's character. I do think that the systemic racism at play is very much evident early on in this film. And we should Mm -hmm. point out, this is actually written by Ed Solomon. So any praise, you know, he should deserve praise and critique for some of this that we're talking about for the screenplay. It's layered in right from the moment that we notice Del Toro's character is offered more money for this same job than she That's right. Okay? So you're right that um, this idea of systemic racism is embedded in the movie, and that is what Cheadle is tapping into in his performance, a part of what makes it so good. I do think that is separate from the, again, without spoiling it, the severe case of not just tacking something on, but holding it over the movie that weighs 50 pounds and dropping it with a thud in the last 10 minutes. And again, I think this is maybe more a fault of a screenplay than what Soderbergh is up to. So that was a problem for me, this thematic kind of last minute messaging that we got. But I think looking back over Soderbergh's career and the things that do hold me back, it is more of those technical choices that that you mentioned. And some of them work better than others. For me, I always want to know, and this comes to your point about interrogation, why was that choice made? What does it have to do beyond the fact that Sean Baker didn't just shoot Tangerine on an iPhone because he wanted to give it a try? You know, we we spent so much time when we talked about how great that film is, is what that mm-hmm. specifically brought to the ideas of that movie. So in this case, I, I'm wondering, you know, what does this, specifically the fisheye lens, which is incredibly distracting, bring to this story, to these themes, to these characters? And that's what I, that's interrogating myself. I don't see what it did. What I don't see what it brought to it. Similarly with High Flying Bird, which was another, I believe, a mobile phone movie, right? And and there were some angles as well that, that completely distanced me in that one. And I kept asking, now, what is the thematic connection? Why is, why is he um, making this choice? To his defense, one of the things I liked about Unsane is it had some very severe stylistic choices that tied in exactly with the sense of, you know, possible psychosis going on there. Absolutely. And so for me, I think it works. Let's even look at something like Out of Sight, Adam. And this, this, this is more pertinent because it has to do with genre, similar genre, right? We did this for a film spotting family member screening, I believe it was. Yeah. Virtual watch. On Patreon, a virtual watch. So it's fresh in our minds. And we spent so much time talking about the the love scene between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez and the really distinct editing going on there. And V Coates doing the editing. Not something like that could be described as distracting to some people too. Mm-hmm. But we spent time talking about how the choices in the editing are not just what made it distinct, but also spoke so 
specifically to their individual characters and how they came together and what this moment meant to them. So when I see something like No Sudden Move and I see these dramatic technical decisions being made, that's the next question I ask is, okay, I'm being distracted by this. If that is on me, what am I missing? And I just, I, I, I don't see what it was here that that added to this story. I do think you're right about sort of the the color scheme and that. I, I think that's smart. I think that plays. I love your comparison to, um, you know, an automobile factory. I think that's dead mm-hmm. on. But yeah, just some of these camera choices are, are um, just a miss for me. Well, this really is at the heart of the, is it Soderbergh or me? And am I going to apologize for him? It really comes down to whether or not you're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he is employing those techniques in the service of the story and not employing it at his own whim because he's kind of bored as a filmmaker and he's a technical filmmaker who wants to try things. And that's certainly why I defended and was favorable on Unsane. I felt like there were things he did, you noted this, with the camera, putting it in places that a normal film camera maybe couldn't go, couldn't give you that same effect that really did add a layer to that film that made it a very different movie and a different experience than it would have been had it been shot more conventionally. I think it was more successful than something like High Flying Bird. And going back through his career, almost every time he's tried one of these new things or he's tried to employ something old, which he did here as much as I understand it in terms of these lenses, it is something that I usually feel like he's doing with the best of intentions. There have been only a few times, something like The Good German. I remember my reaction to that was feeling like, okay, I know what you're trying to do, mm. but it, it really is not working for me here. It does feel just like a formal exercise. Hmm. Watching No Sudden Move, I did not have that feeling. Now, once you get over watching it on your TV set at home, And no matter how much of an astute viewer you may be, especially when you are streaming something and you can get lags and have all sorts of weird things that happen with the frame, I think you can first start to see that kind of fisheye effect and go, what's wrong with my TV? (laughs) What happened here? Right. But then when you dial in and you realize that it's a choice he's making, it didn't it didn't take me that long, Josh, I have to say, to go to a place where I saw it as distracting, but more than that, disorienting putting me in a similar psychological space as these characters it it by being that wide angle lens actually in a way kind of stretches the frame and compresses the the frame in a weird way where everything then just becomes a little bit muddled a little bit clouded no no definition to these rooms to these conversations to these characters there's nothing rigid or kind of defined in this world there is only these tough choices these ambiguous choices. And for me, the effect worked. Okay. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you're right about the dimness and the, it making things fuzzy in a way. I I just saw some of that as like some of these interiors were so low lit. And, And it was almost like the, and again, this I'm sure it was intentional. Like whatever was at the focus of the middle screen is what you could see clearly and everything yeah. else was, but it wasn't like, you know, 
like in The Godfather, where the darkness is supposed mm-hmm. to be encroaching. It just didn't quite have that same effect for me. So I don't know. I, I feel like um, we haven't may, maybe had some of our biggest fights over, over Soderbergh, but I feel like we've had the most disagreements over Soderbergh. Yeah, we maybe have. Going back to side effects, we've <laughs> right, rarely totally. seen eye to eye. I am always in favor, almost always in favor, as I recall it. There's only a few Soderbergh films that I rate fairly lowly, and you're always a little bit a little bit more mixed to to negative, aren't you? Well, I did like the good German, so take that for what it's worth. See, of course you did. (laughs) The one movie, the one movie of his. And I remember not being a fan of Full Frontal either. I think those are really the the only two, though, of course, now that I say that, I think I actually do have, I'm going to stretch this out so I can look it up while I look it up while I talk. When I added No Sudden Move to my Soderbergh ranking list on Letterboxd, I notice that the movie I have ranked the very lowest is actually one of his more recent ones, The Laundromat. Okay. Which, That's one of yeah, the Meryl Streep ones. See, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. see that. Yeah, one of the Streep ones. I have that at the very bottom. I've got No Sudden Move right now. Well, right exactly in the middle. Actually, in the top half. I've got it in the top half. I've got it ahead of Logan Lucky and High Flying Bird, but I do have it below Magic Mike, Josh, you'll appreciate that. Really? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Yeah, that's where it should definitely be below Magic Mike uh, by quite a bit, I'd say. There are still, I just want to lastly throw this in. There are still some amazing moments in terms of the cinematography in this film, where even in these interior spaces, as dimly lit as they sometimes are, he's able to convey still this kind of film noir shadowed aesthetic where despite how sometimes in these interiors there's that kind of amber glow that's kind of gorgeous and yet faces sometimes are still obscured and there's also one shot i love that i was watching online today and it's the moment where del toro and Cheetah have broken into a house and they're leaving and del toro actually puts like a blanket over this woman's head because he, he, he wants to enjoy himself and take his mask off right. and doesn't want her to be able to see him. And she's sitting there. And if you look at this shot, there's like seven layers in terms of the, the foregrounding in the background where the woman with the blanket over her head, then the shadow of the lamp, the lamp itself, Del Toro, Cheadle's in the background, the staircase, the chandelier. It's, it's all in this just gorgeous, deep focus. So, yeah, Soderbergh, apologist here till the day I die. Josh Larson. There's a great shot of Cheadle going up uh, some back stairs that is just like, see, here, here's something that doesn't really have much reason, but I did love. And it's mm-hmm. it's tilted horizontally, so it looks like yes. he's going from right to left on the screen. Yeah. I love that. That was great. So you know there you're going to go. get that. You're going to get okay. at least a couple of those in a Soderbergh movie. Indeed. No Sudden Move currently playing exclusively on HBO and HBO Max. No, it's not your TV. It's Steven Soderbergh. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam's at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Pretty much all Soderbergh praise from Adam over all that time. You can also vote in the Film Spotting poll at the website. We're asking, what is the best basketball movie? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Black Widow. Out on digital, Fear Street Part 2. This is based on the popular 90s book series that's on Netflix. Next week on the show, we will have our 50th anniversary Sacred Cow Review. 
revisit of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and our World of Wong Kar Wai marathon begins with As Tears Go By, which you can currently get via the Criterion box set or over at the Criterion channel. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.